Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And it's all an experiment. As we approach 250 years, it remains unclear whether America is a success created for the purpose of self-government Our Republican form of government cannot function without a widespread assumption that each of us as citizens does have power. Other forms of government, such as plutocracy and dictatorship, don't allow for self-government. There is no concept of citizenship. People are merely subjects who understand and accept that we the people have no power and no say in how we are governed. Throughout the world, uh, throughout the period of the American experiment, there have always been interests who endeavor to make sure democracy is just a facade, window dressing for those who are really pulling the strings of power. Well, my sense is that in recent years, really since the uniquely active late 60s, the acceptance of powerlessness has been far more pervasive. But just as Nixon unwittingly proved to be our best anti-war organizer, the shock of Trump does seem to be waking up the spirit of participation. Mass rallies do make a difference, but afterwards participants often wonder what we really accomplished. As one who has participated in politics and social change at many levels, I often remind people that politics and protest Both are necessary, neither is sufficient. And it does always seem that the powers who are are against real democracy tend to be quite well organized and follow a roadmap of how to effectively convince us we are indeed powerless, while those of us who are determined to see more democracy, not less, tend to be far less organized. We do not have a roadmap. And tragically, this perception often feeds a cycle of cynicism. To perhaps a majority, effectively bringing about social and political change remains mystifying. How does it happen? Well, our guest today, Gordon Whitman, will talk about that. He has a new book out meant to address this very problem. Its title is Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. In a time where the fight for social justice can feel overwhelming, Gordon Whitman empowers readers to stand up with a purpose-driven mindset and an effective strategy. Change is possible, and we have a meaningful role to play. We need to know that we can transform ourselves from passive observers of politics and civic life to public leaders who can stare down bank presidents and politicians. Is it easy? No. Will change come as quickly as we'd like? No again. 
but it can be done. It must be done. Gordon Whitman, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks, Bart. It's good to be here. Gordon Whitman is Director of Policy for Faith in Action. As a community organizer, legal legal services lawyer, and strategist, Gordon has helped working families build strong and effective community organizations for 18 years. He's taught the history and theory of community organizing as an adjunct lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania and has a BA in Urban Studies and History from the University of Pennsylvania and a JD from Harvard Law School. The ascendance of Donald Trump to the presidency, of course, shocked the world and has motivated a great many people to at least want to do something. But you actually started writing this book before the November 2016 election. You must have assumed Hillary Clinton was going to win. I imagine it was quite a different book than what you had intended. What did you intend when beginning the book? Honestly, Bert, I did not um, change the book very much um, after the election. So, you know, there's, there's an adjustment, um, but it's, it's pretty much the same book because the, the challenge we face, as you laid out, um, exists. When Donald Trump will be off the stage at some point, and, and the challenge we face of being better organized, mm-hmm. involving more people, um, making the decisions we have to make to control what happens in our, our communities and our society and not letting a small group of people um, dominate our, our government, um, those things aren't going to go away and, and they won't, they don't depend on Donald Trump. So sure. um, it's the same book. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, we have two parties, really, uh, and, you know, there's elites and power structures that like to keep their positions. Uh, of course, Bernie Sanders presented quite a threat to them, but he was kept down for the time being. And every election year, it seems the majority either wants change or more of the same. Clearly, 2016 was a year when people wanted change. They demanded change. Trump and Bernie Sanders both were about change. Bernie was uniquely popular among young people, the millennials. What worries me now as a long-term activist and former elected official is their withdrawal the, the, the millennials. You've no doubt heard of Dem Exit. People did not get what they wanted, and in frustration and anger at the Democratic Party that denied Bernie the nomination, young people are just giving up, giving up on the Democratic Party. Some voted third party, which, of course, only helps, helps those in power. And In this era of 24-7 instant information, what about patients digging in for the long term? Uh, it seems anathema to this generation. How can this be addressed? It really concerns me. So, Bert, my colleague um, Austin Bilali at our book launch um, this past week um, in D.C. said something that I found profound, that we need young people not because they're young, but because they're new. And what we need is, is new people who bring new perspectives. And, and a big part of why I wrote Stand Up is that there's so many people out there who know what's wrong. They don't need to be told more, more information, more facts about how money has come to dominate our political system. True. But they need to know they have some role to play, and they need an invitation or an opportunity to be part of something that's going to really speak to their values. So we need new people, not just because we don't have enough people I- involved, but because we need that energy 
and that creativity. And you, and you can see that, you know, I've been a community organizer for the past really 25 years, mm. and I work for a big national community organizing network. Faith in Action used to be called PICO, our affiliate in, in New Hampshire's Granite State Organizing Project. Mm. Those organizations have a big role to play, but it's not surprising that it's Black Lives Matter, it's Occupy, it's Me Too, it's places where that are outside those nonprofit structures and, and established organizations where the energy is coming from. So I, I think it's there. I think people want change, and we've got to um, create organizations that really speak to people's values. And, and I do wonder if the Democratic Party, which is a large, very amorphous organization, and I put a question mark after that, uh, can has the interest in reaching out to the new people, the new energy. I mean, it seems to me it's fairly obvious we have to do that. But I, I, I wonder if, as you talk about organizations, is uh, to make real political change, it seems you have to work with the parties, at least at the political level. There's the protest level, too, which is very significant. But I wonder, do you see the Democratic Party reaching out to young people? I mean, Bernie I think himself was a bit surprised at how much young people uh, uh, went for him, but he he fired him up because of authenticity, because you could tell he was speaking from the heart. A- any sense of the Democratic Party is getting this? Well, Bert, what I see is people um, fighting to change the Democratic Party, and and more importantly, trying to change their local and state parties. Right. So it's remarkable the number of people who over the past year, have said, I'm going to run for office. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to volunteer on a campaign where there's somebody in my community, in my organization, that I know who's running for office. Um, you know, run for office, work on a campaign, learn to be a campaign manager. Mm. Um, we're seeing that from the bottom-up school board, yeah. prosecutor races, faith in action. We're doing a lot of work on those sheriff and prosecutor races that have such an important role to play in um, who ends up in in jail and um, whether the police get held accountable. And we're seeing that those campaigns to influence those local races also help us at the state level. So as we work to pass policies that don't over-incarcerate people of color, Mm. often the biggest opponents we have are prosecutors and sheriffs. So we start running um, candidates in those local races we not only influence local policy, but we send a message that we don't want prosecutors, sheriffs, uh, people in our criminal justice system advocating for more money for prisons right. and, um, and more people behind bars. That's not acceptable. So it's all connected, but it often starts locally. And I think the willingness of people to run for office who are not you know, coming out of the the Democratic Party structure right. um, is tremendous, and and we need you know we need more women, more people of color, in positions of government. Uh, I I couldn't agree more. You know, I'm seeing the same thing. I was curious to see if you were seeing that too. That you know, at the, at the local and state level, I've seen people who are getting involved now who have never been involved before. And, you know, as the discussion goes on, Gordon, we're going to, uh, you know, talk about what feelings are involved with that. I mean, there's some people have referred to politics as sort of a drug. Once you get your first hit of a little bit of success, you want more and more and more. 
And it's it's not a bad feeling. And it's wonderful to see people at the local level, as you say, school boards, uh, sheriff, local levels. And change always, always comes from the bottom up. And that is how it's working now. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our guest is Gordon Whitman, author of the new book, Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. I think that winning part is important. Veteran community organizers often try to teach the the techniques, the how-tos of organizing, which is absolutely essential. you got to have that. But what about the reasons one might choose to dedicate one's life working for progressive social change? These don't seem to be so upfront. How do you incorporate these factors into your work with would-be and new activists? Well, we, we really want to start with people and um, what matters to them. So I think one of the big mistakes we make in social justice, social change work, is to think we have to tell people what's wrong and that that will motivate people. Uh. And in practice, um, that only goes so far. And you, know, you can spend a lot of time complaining about what other people are doing, um, you know, Republican Party, conservatives, but we really need to look at what resources we have as citizens, as people, um, and use them effectively. In my experience, the starting place for that is, is really um, asking people to reflect on what their purpose is, why they're here, what they want to accomplish, what matters to them. Um, the more people have a stake, um, the more willing they are to overcome the obstacles. You can't get involved in social change without people pushing back on you. Yeah. Um, and I tell a lot of stories in the book about people who, um, you know, ordinary people who realized that they had more um, voice and more influence than they thought. But often it starts with something local that gives you a taste, and then you, you grow that. So I tell a story about a woman who first got involved just trying to improve the education that her, her, her children were getting at the local elementary school. But that put her on a path where she ultimately was the lead negotiator on a big um, campaign and then agreement with a with a bank that that was um, coming to buy another bank and shut down branches and we kept open those bank branches in Philadelphia and lending flowing into those neighborhoods and I don't think that Dolores would have thought at the time uh-huh. that she first got involved that she'd end up being interviewed by local newspaper reporters and being asked you know what's your opinion about this bank merger but you know that's that's the process of becoming somebody who's an agent and and like you said at the at the top of the the show that isn't just sort of saying well whatever happens happens i'm a passive mm. observer it doesn't happen all at once but right. people need to take the first step i i it's been frankly a joy to see that happening and obviously you've seen it too see people new people and as you say you know not just young people new people with their new energy be bugged by something like, uh, I mean, where I live, you know, there's too many trees being cut down. People are getting involved in trying to do something about that. And it's interesting to see people who, I mean, you got your old veterans who've been there a long, long time, and sometimes that gets a little tiring and less effective. But new people who are, you know, it's coming from the heart, it, it really works. And you have very interesting chapter titles, and I'll jump right to one. Chapter four is called Story, Building Relationships 
that move people to action. Whenever I've seen you know, people running for office, when they tell a story, a personal story, a real story, it connects with people. Tell us about that uh, chapter four called Story, please. Yeah, and you know, we know this when we hear somebody give a speech or or talk. Um, often, if someone asks us a week later, what did that person say? All we really remember is the story. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't want people to think that this is just about storytelling or just about reflecting on your purpose. We, we're really trying to build organizations that can play serious, hardball politics, yeah. that can not only transform how cities work, but change state policy when increases in the wage benefits, really transform our society into a, a, a society where people can raise families and um, send their kids to college, and we have a level of racial and economic equity that we don't have today. So mm-hmm. we're trying to build strong organizations, but if you don't start with story, it's really hard for people to ultimately be able to hang in there together and not get divided. And we have a lot of data in Faith in Action, formerly PICO, that um, it says if you just ask people at the, at the top of a meeting to spend 10 or 15 minutes getting to know each other, sharing their story, meeting someone they don't know, it's much more likely that those people will show up at the next meeting. So it's a very simple kind of human architecture piece of work that if you facilitate a meeting and you create space, for people to share their stories, they'll come back more often and they're more willing to take leadership because we want to to be seen, we want to be heard. Everybody has a story and creating space for people to tell their story is one of the first steps in having some dignity. Well, that's that's really interesting. I, I, clearly, I mean, your experience has, has led to this book, Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. And, you know, you've seen what works. And I know, too, you know, if people are talked at, you know, if they're in an audience and the speaker occasionally might refer to them as you people, <laughs> we've all seen that happen, uh, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't connect. People need to feel like they're, involved in it, like they can participate, like they're heard. And I think part of the overall problem that that your book, I think, seeks to address is people feeling powerless. You know, it's a sense of powerlessness. And a democracy, a Republican form of government can only function when people do feel some sense of power. And it can be done. You know, there's various different how-tos, if you will, and, and that's one there just telling stories, letting people listen to one another and, and care about one another and bringing them back again. That's for sure. Bringing them back again because, you know, people, that, that's one thing that, uh, you know, we in the Democratic Party wondered about after the election of Trump, would people still keep coming back? Well, yeah, they are coming back for the most part. And I think it's partially people feel like they're being heard. Uh, and again, you talk about, you know, internal transformation. That's a big part of that. Let's talk about that emotional and spiritual process. Why is it important to come into social change work with some idea about how you want to grow personally? Go ahead. Yeah, and Bert, you can't tell another person that they're powerful and or to be powerful. <laughs> it doesn't. It kind of in in our own lives, it doesn't work that way. You have to experience it, okay. and that's that's that's. And it's really one of the missing pieces in how we we have designed 
a lot of our social change work. So we're inviting people into things where somebody in an office, often sitting behind a computer, comes up with a good campaign and says, well, let's, let's see if we can send out some emails and get people to sign this petition. Or maybe we'll organize a rally and ask people to show up. None of those are bad. They right. have a role to play. Sure. But in, if we really want to get to the, you know, a, a different promised land that we have, we've got to create the opportunity for people to actually show up and directly experience their own power. Mm. It means coming into organizations where people are expecting something from the people who are members. You know, a lot of us are members of organizations simply because we once signed on to a petition right. and now right. we get emails right. and we're considered a member of X environmental organization or X civil rights organization. That's not really membership. Membership is, I, I, I actually know other members and I have a role to play in, in, in shaping this organization and deciding what it focuses on and, um, and helping lead it. And, and that experience of directly confronting a decision maker, whether it's meeting with my sheriff or my police chief to talk about criminal justice issues, or it's going to see the bank president about foreclosures, or whatever that issue that people are concerned about, that's what, that's what helps people see their own power. And what's happened is that it looks as if participation in rallies and even civil disobedience has pretty much remained stable since the 1960s. But that practice of day-to-day political activity has really gone down. And that's sort of the art and science of that, that stand-up is, is addressed to, and that I don't think we get to a different society and, 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 and survive all the, the sort of pickle we're in mm. when you think about climate change, inequality, racism, all feeding and fueling each other, unless we create a lot more opportunities for people to be political and grow in that process. Interesting. It reminds me, I mean, talking about stories, I got one. It was the summer of uh, 1968. I was, I was in Outward Bound, and there were 10 uh, students together, and there was one who was the clear leader, and then, like, number 10 was this quiet, kind of shy guy, uh, a short guy, and the other one was much taller. And by the end, the people, we were together, and we, the guy who was leader at the time ended up being the real follower, and the, the one, number 10, ended up being the leader just because, and he was shy, I think. He, he wasn't outspoken, but we listened to him, and enabled him to to participate fully in it and we realized hey this guy's got it i'm happy to i trust him i got happy to follow his lead so i wonder about enabling that to happen enabling people to to come out because a lot of people they feel like oh i can't talk publicly i can't as you say you know go face to face with the bank president or somebody like that people you know can they be transformed do you think yeah, and, you know, every community organizer has a lot of these stories where, you know, you look at who comes to the first meeting and who's speaking out and, you know, talking, and often it's not the person that's going to do the work. 
So, and, and we all have these experiences of sort of the loud mouth in the meeting. Right. Um, but then, you know, does that person come back when it comes time to, you know, say, like, who's going to go out and knock on doors? Right. So part of what we're trying to do, and, you know, a lot of what stand-up does is say, here's what we've learned about creating better organizations, better meetings. You know, a lot of us, meetings get a bad rap, but they're good meetings and they're bad meetings, and you can organize them better. And really want sort of people's experience in social change to be one where, where the organizations are better organized. And a big piece of that is what you're saying, which is that it's the people who do the work that need to rise up into leadership. And, you know, I talk a, a, a bit about the first Obama campaign, which is well right. studied and was one of the first national political campaigns to bring community organizing into how that campaign was run, and primarily activities that used to be done and, and generally today are done by volunteer by by paid staff right. were done by volunteers. And Bernie Sanders campaign kind of replicated this in some different ways and built on it, um, and really showed that if you organize people effectively, and 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 teams are a big part of that, and mm. give people really clear roles, you can see who's really doing the work. And um, and those are the people that then step into leadership. So that that is a big piece of kind of better organized organizations. It sounds like, in a way, the goal you know the long term goal that we're trying to reach is you know more people having power, real citizen participation, and the way to get there is to do it. <laughs> As, you know, like just making it happen makes it happen. And that's it's really interesting. And obviously, you've had a lot of experience in, in seeing this. And, you know, it's quantifiable, measurable, and doable. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. You are participating. The book is Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. Our guest is its author, Gordon Whitman. Uh, and what uh, so many interesting chapter titles like uh, we mentioned chapter four story building a relationship that moves people to action chapter three is called purpose preparing emotionally for the fight of your life talk about that if you would please gordon so you know i was just thinking um today about nelson mandela um and in South Africa, it's been in the news because Hugh, um, Hugh I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Masakela um, passed away yes. um, today. And, you know, you just think about someone who spent 26 years of their life in, oh in prison and then walked out to lead their country. And, um, and just what it takes to persist and believe that what you know is right um, will come true and that you you will ultimately be free. And, you know, for most of us, that, that's that's more dramatic than we might experience. But sure. I've never seen anyone get involved in social change where somebody, and sometimes it's in your own family, says, you know what, why are you going to that meeting? Why are you complaining? Some, you could lose your job. Fannie Lou Hamer, who lost her job, when she, at a, on a plantation, when she registered to vote. She's actually told, if you go and register to vote, you will lose your job as a timekeeper on this plantation um, in, in Mississippi in the 1960s. 
and um, said, no, I'm going to go do that, and um, ultimately became a SNCC field worker, and then led, um, spoke at the 64 convention and led the effort to desegregate the Democratic Party. So it's it, that clarity of um, why am I doing this and what do I want to leave behind is what helps people overcome all those messages that say shut up. Yeah. And, and Charles Payne, um, in this great book, I've Got the Light of Freedom, says that Fannie Lou Hamer was, um, it wasn't like the movement found her. She was looking for the movement. So people who, who know why they're here, what they want to do, will take leadership and will transform their communities in the country. I wonder, some people would say, oh, I'm not a leader. I'm, you know, I just fade in the background. This is not my shtick. You can go do this. Other people, you know, do what they want. I'm not going to do this. But I wonder, you know, as we look through various different heroes that there have been uh, through the years, like Aaron Brockovich, people like that, they didn't intend on doing this stuff. It kind of came to them and they became exceedingly effective. What would you say to people who say, oh, no, I, it's just it's not for me. I can't do that. I mean, maybe that's true in some cases. What are your thoughts on that, Gordon? Yeah, I think it's, it's really the reverse, that the great leaders and the great change makers are people who have a, a, a stake in, in the change. And, and we've seen this over and over. You know, the experience of coming out is, is so tied to the gay rights movement in this country. Um, but that process of coming out, of saying, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, I demand to be seen yeah. as a fully human um, person, really is what led... Um, you know, we're, we're in the middle of, of, of this big fight over DACA and, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and the fate of dreamers and immigrants um, in the country. And that movement, you know, more than a decade ago, began with young immigrant um, immigrants in this country saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. I'm undocumented. I'm un- unafraid. And they built a movement that, you know, is transforming the country. And, and that's the pattern that we see over and over. And when I wrote Stand Up, I really wanted to write a book that would be motivational. I, you know, there's, there, there's some how-tos, and, and, and that's important. But I didn't want to write just like a nuts and bolts book. I wanted to uh-huh. write a book that was motivational, because I think motivation right. is often what's missing. Motivation, perspiration, yeah, it all goes in there, no doubt about it. you got to stick with it, and it's, it's not instant. They, you know, again, I'm, I'm concerned about young people and their, you know, addiction to uh, smartphones and if it doesn't happen right away. I, you know, we got to somehow, if people, if it touches their lives somehow, you know, and I think the, the, the uh, coming out, that's, it, it kind of, I think, carries over to a lot of different areas. Like, are you concerned about climate change? Personally concerned about that. Does that affect you? And to a lot of people, it does. So bringing people out and kind of, Giving them oxygen, I guess, is is a is a part of it that you know enables people to to come out and get involved and be citizens as our America's great founders really intended. They didn't intend a nation of sheep. We're we're all supposed to. I mean, when they talk about citizenship, that's what you're talking about, Gordon Whitman. Is participating, recognizing that this is at least in theory a land of equality where we all can participate in it. And, well, and I think one of the, the challenges is 
not to lose a sense of urgency while recognizing that change doesn't come on our terms or our timeline, Mm -hmm. and that the big changes often involve a long arc. So one of the things that was interesting in, in doing the research for the book was looking at kind of what are the basic frameworks in this country, the United States, of social change movements. And, you know, that leads you back to the anti-slavery movement, a really profound decision that was made in the early 1830s to go from what had been a fairly elite and gradualist approach to ending slavery in the United States to a decision to um, both create new organizational structures, but really a new strategy that said, this is all or nothing. It's a moral struggle. That was that decision was informed by slave revolts and by a lot of the kind of moral um, rising up that was happening in the society more broadly. Um, to say we need to ask every person, every institution, every elected official to take a clear moral stand on the immediate abolition of slavery, and that decision combined with a decision to create chapters, societies all across the country, and have, um, they call them lecturers, but they're essentially community organizers, go out and spread that narrative and create, help people create those structures and then knit them together, really is what built the anti-slavery movement and ultimately helped provoke the Civil War and end and um, slavery. And, and that sort of combination of a moral struggle with a sense of urgency, with structures that allow people to engage at a local level that are knit together by organizers, really was the pattern that that has shaped social change in this country from populism to the labor movement, civil rights movement, and and I think it's 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 very applicable today because we do have just you know some critical questions as a society that people have to take a stand on. We don't have a lot of time when yeah. you think about what's happening with climate change and inequality and racism. So w- there is urgency, and everyone has to, has to be challenged to take a stand on, are they, um, are, they, are they with a society that is humane, welcoming, supports families, or, um, or not? And Trump obviously helps us um, crystallize that choice. <laughs> That's for sure. And it's interesting, you know, I, people who listen to this show regularly are probably tired of hearing me say, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. But if you do learn from history, you talk about the, the, uh, the way the anti-slavery uh, movement came about, the prohibition movement. I mean, I disagree with that, but it came about kind of the same way. On the, on the local level, people cared about this. They cared about alcohol and violence against women. And it, it, it all came together, and surprise, surprise, it happened. I mean, eventually they made the change. But that, that is how things work. And if you look at history, uh, you know, in American social and political change and cultural change, uh, that's, that's the way it happens. And it's real people really involved. Uh, and you talk about uh, what, one thing is, is your experience in other countries. And when I was in college— one of the subjects I studied was Latin American politics and history. We learned at the time, and this was uh, 1971, that Chile stood out as having a long-term stable democracy. 
Then came Nixon and Kissinger, and they installed the military dictator, Augusto Pinochet, after violently ousting the elected Salvador Allende. You lived in Chile, Gordon Whitman, uh, in 1990 during the transition from dictatorship back to democracy. Fascinating. There's a good movie about that, by the way, just called No, which you've probably seen. Is there anything you learned that has subsequently informed your organizing work here in America from that experience? Yeah, Bert, I'd I'd point to two things. Um, First, it was really powerful as somebody really new to social change to see people who'd spent their lifetimes fighting a dictatorship and what they learned in the process. And that sense that if you went to a meeting, potentially you could be uh, arrested, disappeared, tortured, killed, um, and and the, the stakes involved in social change always keeps me grounded in, you know, it may not always seem like it, but we're really in the fight of our lives. And then if you're in that situation, really um, recognizing that you have to have enough trust, you need to know people well. People might not use their names so that, you know, people don't end up um, getting reported to the, mm-hmm. to the um, military, yeah. but you you need to know that I can trust this person that's sitting next to me in the meeting, yeah. and I can't afford to just say, "Well, I'm sure they're you know, I'm sure they're they're a good person," or I'll just I'll just come and I'll I'll I'll, I'll listen and I'll I'll do it you know what the organization's doing. You really have to invest in knowing these are people that I could trust my life with. Hmm. And again, I don't think that's that different in the civil rights movement and the situation we're in today, we're up against some very powerful forces. We need to know we can trust the people that we're working with, and that means we need to invest in building relationships with them. And then probably the other thing that was a a good lesson to me was that the reason why Chile had a stable democracy for many years and that um, the movement to fight Pinochet was able to persist and ultimately succeed is there had been generations of investment in the formation and development of people as citizens, political education, and the level of kind of political understanding of conversations you'd have on the street with people was so impressive um, to me. And I think, you know, one of our big challenges in the United States right now is to raise our own kind of political um, IQ around creating change. More people who are more um, prepared to be part of a long-term change process. And that really happens person by person, community by community. Mm. But we're not prepared as citizens, I think, for the threats that we're facing. People so often, I think these days in America, you know, other countries I've been in, people talk about politics a lot. It seems like people in other countries know a lot more generally, generally, about American politics than most Americans do. We've been led to believe that we are powerless, the leaders know more than we do, and, you know, things like Fox News and even, you know, regular news just, it sort of dumbs us down. They've been, you know, cutting funding for education because they don't want people to participate. They really don't want people to participate. And I'm remembering when you're talking about trusting, I was in an anti-nuclear group in the early 70s, and the fact that we knew that there were uh, uh, spies there from from the FBI and other agencies, you know, indicated to us, hey, 
were on the right trail. But they did try to, to mess things up, and they were somewhat effective in doing that. I mean, once you uh, attract uh, you know, people from the other side who are spying on you, it, it indicates you're doing something right. And well, and it's cynicism that is, is the biggest weapon. And, and, and whenever people feel cynical, really encourage like, the, the, the connecting the dots that it's the people often who have the most control, the most resources in society, who have their hands on the levers of power, large corporations, wealthy people, who are the ones telling us often, no, you can't fight City Hall. Right. It's just going to be like this. Right. And so often we hear that message and it's important to remember that's not just neutral. Yeah. That's a, that is a, a way to get us to just participate as consumers and not as citizens. Absolutely. There was actually a one-term governor uh, here in the state of New Hampshire, where the show is coming from, who changed the Office of Citizen Affairs to Consumer Affairs. Then it was changed back because citizenship and consumerism are two entirely different things. We are not just consumers. We are citizens. And following on this topic, you write that, quote, to stop an injustice, we have to first understand who is profiting from it, end of quote. I would think that by its very nature, someone always benefits from injustice. Do you think that is true? And, and how important is that to, to, to really get that, that if there's an injustice, somebody is profiting from that injustice? What do you think? Yeah, so a lot of times I find that people come into social change or, you know, care about an issue, gun violence or climate change, and they have some illusions about information, awareness, leading to change. And that's, you know, it can happen in places, but in general, if we've got deep-seated problems, it's because somebody is benefiting or thinks they're benefiting. And they're going to fight for that status quo. You know, one of the big um, emerging issues over the past decade in this country has been how we dismantle this system of mass incarceration that's put so many people of color and so many youth of color Mm -hmm. behind bars. Mm. And, you know, much more attention today on that issue than we had five, six, seven years ago. Michelle Alexander um, and the, the new Jim Crow, you know, huge impact on how people think about the issue. And, and now you get some bipartisan interest in it and Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals interested in um, criminal justice reform. But the needle isn't moving as fast as it should because people are benefiting from the current system. It's not just a matter of telling people it's wrong, it would be better to invest money in education than prisons. Most people get that. It has broad public support. But when you look at prosecutors, sheriffs, private prison companies, private companies that provide services in prisons, the location of prisons in rural communities that then become um, constituencies to maintain and grow that prison. So we have to name that. And, And in my experience, when people see who's profiting, they're much clearer about the need to change the situation and that it's going to take more power and more organizing to do it. So we've got to name names and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and not pretend that um, change is just going to happen because um, policymakers or the public becomes more aware of the problem. And that brings up something that's a big problem 
across America these days, and that's uh, the uh, painkiller epidemic, the the, the scourge of, of opioids. And, you know, even Donald Trump is saying, oh, we got to fight this this opioid epidemic. Somebody has been profiting from this. And I think, you know, we're like, it feels to me like we're sort of spinning our wheels, you know, oh, those bad addicts, they just, just say no to drugs. You're right, that'll work. But it's the, the some of the ph- pharmaceutical companies actually had a strategy to create a marketing uh, uh, scheme talking about a, a an epidemic of untreated pain. They are making a lot of money from this. And it seems to me, you know, I don't know. This is seems to me a subject that people are very concerned about. A lot of people are dying unnecessarily, and and this is a real social problem. I wonder if you could uh, address this a little bit. Yeah, I think that I mean you you hit the the nail on on the head that it's a great example of corporate interests that help get us into this mess, and um, and then the blame goes to individuals. Right. It, it's also. Uh, you know, a great example of our healthcare system yeah. and the need for a coherent healthcare system that puts um, drug treatment as a and mental health as a priority. I mean, the stresses on people and families are huge, and um, we've had a healthcare system that's it's underinvested in drug treatment, and we've tended to criminalize what really needs to be dealt with as a health issue. And, you know, our jails throughout New Hampshire and across the country are full of people who belong in either mental health treatment or drug treatment. And and really, it makes no sense for them to be in prison, in jail. And the other dimension it brings up that is also a fatal flaw in how we've organized often um, for change in this country is the the way in which we avoid conversations about race and the way in which we silo or segment issues um, in ways that suggest that, you know, one issue is a white issue or one issue is a race-neutral issue, another issue is a black issue or a Latino issue. And as I watch the heroin um, and opioid crisis play out, I think one of our big challenges is not to let that become another dividing point oh. around, and this is, as you know, how the system often works and how people in power often operate is to divide people who share common interests oh, yes. by saying, well, no, it's not really, um, you know, that corporation or that industry, payday lending industry or the no. uh, pharmaceutical industry. It's really those people, and, and they're the res- they're those, those immigrants that are responsible <laughs> for the lack of work in your community. So I think especially when we think about the opioid crisis, we need to be really conscious to connect the dots in our criminal justice system and um, not allow for this divide by race. One of the things I'm really impressed by in New Hampshire is obviously a very white state, um, but organizations like Grand State Organizing Project that have really made an effort to engage immigrants and people of color and youth of color in political life, in organizing um, big voter turnout efforts focused on immigrants that made a big difference in 2016. Yes. And we've seen over and over in states that become more multiracial, mm. even if they start very white yeah. and remain fairly white in their population, 
as the state becomes more multiracial, and usually it's younger families, younger people you see it in the schools, yeah. public support for investment in healthcare, education, public transit goes down. People stop seeing everyone as part of the same community. And one of the things we're, we're doing in community organizing that GSOP does, that we're doing with Faith in Action across the country, is really saying we need to get on the other side of that. So we need to talk about it. We need to put people in rooms together where they're mm. talking across race and class about who's included in the future of our state and how we fight against efforts to divide us and say, no, don't invest in public services because it's not people that you see as your family or your community. Because we are, you know, we're one humanity, really? but it's easy to get us divided. And if we don't see the other people, I mean, we can say, oh, it's those people over there. But then we, you know, as, as privileged white people, uh, actually are affected by that adversely as well, because we can be, you know, those people and shut out. But more and more, you know, as we become a more multicultural society and, and white Protestant straight male dominance is, you know, kind of ending, even though they're fighting hard to hang on to that. People are seeing, and people, you know, even here in white New Hampshire, where there are, you know, people from other countries in, people who have a darker shade, people, once they get to know them, they say, you know, they're fine. They're my neighbors. I'm going to defend them if something bad happens to them. And there have been bad, racist things that have happened. I think more contact uh, can actually help because, you know, what you don't know, I mean, people can be afraid of what they don't know. Uh, you know, there there are people who don't know that they know a lot of homosexuals and they're afraid of it. But once they realize, it's just anybody else. What has your, this is, so many things have informed where you are and what this book is about, Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World of Fire. One of the uh, things, experiences that have informed you is that you are a parent of a special needs child and you've gotten, you've learned from that relative about the effective functioning of organizations. What can you tell us about that experience and what you learned from that? Yeah, it's interesting. I learned to organize in Philadelphia working with parents at, at, at very um, poor and um, low-performing elementary and middle and high schools and working with parents to build organizations that could fight for better education for their kids. But then I had my own children and um, I tell a story in the book about a program that my son was in when he was in middle school and how we learned at the very last minute that it was slated for major budget, budget cuts in our town oh boy. and how I did not know the other parents of the children in that program. And that was the biggest challenge of, of fighting back against these budget cuts. We all went to a school board meeting, couldn't testify last minute, too late, but then went out into the hallway and said, all right, as an organizer with these 10 parents standing in a circle, let's just introduce ourselves. Let's hear each other's stories. By the end of that 45 minutes, a lot of crying, people were really clear that they shared a purpose together. We began meeting. We went out and we listened to other parents and other special education parents. We built a uh, uh, basically a network of about a thousand people mm. who are willing to stand with us. So that's like building a base, which I talk about in the book, of people that will stand with you. And then we directly started to negotiate with the school board 
and ultimately had to hold a rally on the school board steps and get media coverage, um, really pack a school board meeting, uh-huh. and ultimately negotiated change. And it really took that early work of getting to know each other that made a difference. Boy, I'll tell you, that, that, that's a great story, and it happens more often than people probably realize. I mean, as, again, most times people think, oh, they're powerless, but there's so many stories about these communities coming together over issues that affect them personally. Um, I, I got to ask this, too. Uh, my old friend, Abby Hoffman, from the 60s, used to say that our messages should be targeted to the seven-year-old mind. I bring that up because I have the impression that messages have to be kept very simple, like make America great again. What did you learn from your then 10-year-old daughter when she accompanied you on a march on Wall Street? Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so I I don't think we have to simplify, uh, and I think the Women's March is a great example. Marches have been a great example of releasing people's creativity and we you know i think we've you know we've all been just moved by and 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 uh, the humor and the creativity when people can express what they what they think um about what's happening in the world um the march i talk about during the 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 um the wall street um crisis um that I took my daughter to was really confusing and the messaging was confusing. And uh, I don't think it, it broke out beyond the people in the march. And then that's really the point, um, mm. that we've got to be talking to people who aren't already convinced or convicted and speak to people based on their values. And I think what the civil rights movement did well at its best was make really clear moral um, choices and um, right and wrong. And I think we've lost some of that sense of right and wrong um, and the ability to talk in moral terms. And I think it's really important not to simplify the message, but to make it clear that there's a choice and that right and wrong do matter and that as people are trying to create a better society, we can own that language yes. and that way of thinking about right and wrong. That, I think we've given up too much of it. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the so-called moral majority back in, what, the 70s or whatever, and the charge from the right wing that uh, we on the other side are moral relativists, nothing could be farther from the truth. We have our morals as well. And as, you know, I see what's going on nowadays, people do care about what's right and wrong. That's an interesting point that that, that can bring people together because I think it's I think it's an innate thing a sense of right or wrong and I just we don't have that much time left but as a former candidate I can attest to the fact that it is it is better to win than to lose I mean some people thrive on losing I understand that chapter 7 is titled power winning social change I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit please yeah, so, and I, I, I really intentionally put win in the title of the book. Um, yes. We're in a battle and we're in a struggle and we have a lot of resources if we're willing to organize ourselves well. Um, and I go through a lot of successful campaigns, often people beginning locally, which you talked a lot about, but then not stopping there. So the, the men and women who returned from, from prison in California to Richmond, California, began organizing to make Richmond a place where people could put their lives back together led a campaign to stop the construction of a new jail, but then went on to help lead a campaign at the state level to reform their criminal justice system, and then ended up in the White House negotiating with the Obama administration. 
about fair hiring for people with criminal records at the federal level. So we're really aiming, certainly at Faith in Action and the other organizing networks we work with, for organizations that can work locally, state, federal, where people can go all the way to Washington, but be going with stories and experience of fighting for things successfully in their in their cities and their towns. And that really connects with people. And, you know, I, I just, you know, people, there are over 300 million Americans now. Most of us keep our heads down and just do our best to make ends meet. Uh, some people with a great deal of money are driven by some bizarre need for more and more and more. My, what the point I'm trying to make is that people want to feel fulfilled. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, civic engagement actually can be fulfilling. I mean, what, what did your life accomplish? People often ask, and they want to feel that. What can you say? What would you say can people expect to feel when they devote at least some of their lives to working for justice? Yeah, and Bert, let me just underline that I don't believe we have to persuade people right. to get involved. I think we have to invite them. Ah, good point. I think people want to be involved. They're waiting to be invited into something that's coherent. And I think if you do get invited into something that's coherent, then you're part of a community. And we get support from community. It helps us with our own life. It helps us raise our kids. There's some things we cannot do for our families alone. So we join with other people. Yes. And... You know, purpose is important. Fundamentally, you know, we're here for a fairly short time on Earth, and what we leave behind is important to all of us. And the opportunity to leave your community, your country better is one that most people will take if they're offered it. And the reality is that if you ask someone to come to a meeting or volunteer or do something that is purposeful, many, many times... Very often, people say yes. Yeah, and they feel good. Asking enough people, and and they feel good about being there. They really do. I've seen it so often. Fascinating stuff. Very, very appropriate for our time. The book is called "Stand Up" with an exclamation point. How to get involved, speak out, and win in a world on fire. Our guest has been its author, Gordon Whitman. Thank you so much. Fascinating discussion, and uh, it's always nice to feel a little bit of sense of optimism. Thanks, Bart. All right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, 